Hello listeners. I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception. Joyful.gifts. Joyful.gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www.no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last week, we discussed the origins and geography of Ethiopian civilization and the enigmatic land of Punt, and witnessed the rise and subsequent decline of Egyptian influence in the Horn of Africa. So, last week, I kinda messed up. I couldn't find a solid answer on why Egypt's trade connections with Punt suddenly severed in the late New Kingdom period. Well, turns out that my mistake was looking too hard for the answer in scholarly writings about Punt when I should have been paying more attention to Egypt itself. One viewer brought to my attention that the end of trade relations between Egypt and Punt coincides with the economic decline of the late New Kingdom. Around 1100 BC, a series of eruptions of the Hecla volcano in Iceland filled the global atmosphere with dust, blotting out the sun and chilling the world's temperatures, causing massive climate change in the process. Crops died and economies failed. Facing a declining economy, Egypt could no longer afford to continue supporting expensive trade voyages to East Africa, and their influence in the region gradually declined. East Africa's economy was no doubt hurt by this climate shift as well. Not only were their own crops failing, but their most lucrative trading partner had evaporated in the region. With Egypt's presence gone from East Africa, an economic power vacuum formed in the Ethiopian highlands. The valuable resources of East Africa continued to be exploited, but with Egypt's absence, there was nowhere to export them. However, soon after Egypt's retreat from Punt, in would step the subject of this week's episode, the land of Saba. Episode 12, The Rise of Saba. Now, whether you know it or not, you've probably heard of the Kingdom of Saba before, albeit under a different name. Most scholars believe that this land is equivalent to the biblical Kingdom of Sheba, the home of the legendary Queen of Sheba lover of Solomon. Additionally, seemingly every Ethiopian restaurant is named after her. Anyways, the Kingdom of Saba was a real place, but it was not located in Africa. Rather, the kingdom was in southern Arabia, within the modern nation of Yemen, right across the Red Sea from the Ethiopian highlands. Now, I said that I would try to make an effort to minimize the discussion of non-African history within this podcast. But in this case, the early history of the Kingdom of Saba is so important to Ethiopian history that I'll have to make an exception. Saba began its rise around 1000 BC. Early on, southern Arabia was a lot like Ethiopia, in that it was composed by a whole bunch of tiny city-states. One of these city-states, though, Marib, eventually managed to surpass the others in terms of wealth and influence. Marib was significantly larger than any of its neighbors in terms of population and economic output. In fact, calling Marib's neighbors city-states might be a bit misleading. Marib was, in a sense, the only true city in southern Arabia, a wealthy, walled metropolis surrounded by oversized agrarian villages. Rather than conquering its weaker neighbors militarily, 
the kings of Marib instead took over their rivals in more subtle ways. Through a mixture of bribery, diplomacy, and strategic marriages, the first known king of Marib, a man known as Amir Bayin, came to surpass all other kings of southern Arabia. Eventually, Amir Bayin decided to drop the title of king altogether, and instead took the title of Mukarib, meaning Holy Federator. This Mukarib was essentially the king of kings in southern Arabia, and while local kings were allowed to keep their power and retained a high degree of personal autonomy, this was only the case if they pledged their undying loyalty to the Mukarib. This confederation of southern Arabian kings would eventually come to form what we now call the Kingdom of Saba. Kingdom, though, might be a bit of a misnomer. You see, the Sabaean state functioned less like a traditional monarchy, and instead acted more akin to what we would now call a theocracy. In order to legitimize their rule, the Mukaribs of Saba claimed to be the spiritual conduit of Al-Makkah, the southern Arabian god of the moon and agriculture, as well as the patron god of the Sabaeans. While Amir Bayin achieved his status as Mukarib through the cunning use of diplomacy, his successors would use the holy authority as the bridge between the godly and mortal realms to enforce their will. Later Mukaribs would drop the pretense of being spiritual bridges altogether, and would, like the pharaohs of Egypt, claim direct descent from the gods. While religion was certainly helpful in legitimizing their rule, the Mukaribs of Saba, in reality, perpetuated their power from a completely different source altogether. Modern Yemen is an incredibly arid country, with no permanent rivers flowing through its valleys, and this was true back in 1000 BC as well. The closest thing it had to rivers is a series of ephemeral streams, called wadis, strewn throughout the country. These streams were essential to the growth of cities, but also presented a problem. Ephemeral streams are, as their namesake implies, not permanent, and instead only flow during periods of great rainfalls in this case during monsoon season, before drying up later in the year. In order to survive, the Sabaeans had to be incredibly careful and precise in how this precious water was used. The Mukaribs of Saba constructed earthen dams along the beds of these ephemeral streams, which would collect massive pools of water to be diverted into irrigation canals. In Marib, this earthen dam was eventually replaced with a more sophisticated brick dam, large enough to collect water to irrigate tens of thousands of acres of farmland. The Mukaribs who controlled these dams also controlled the nation's water supply, and thus controlled the Sabaean state. These advanced agricultural systems allowed Saba to escape the worst effects of the global crop failures. While the rest of the world's economy imploded, Saba's economy was flourishing, and while Egypt's declining economy forced it to withdraw from the Red Sea region, Saba would eventually take its place as the preeminent power. The global economy eventually recovered from the agrarian collapses, and the lucrative Red Sea trade route was renewed, with the Mukaribs and not the pharaohs now reaping its benefits. The largest exports from Saba were incenses, especially the precious aromatic crystallized tree resins, frankincense and myrrh. When burnt, these resins create a pleasurable scent, and were used widely throughout the world in both religious and medical settings. To ship the goods east, Sabaean merchants would send rafts full of frankincense and myrrh across the Indian Ocean, while, to send them north, they would sail up the Red Sea to sell them to the tribes of northern Arabia, who would promptly load them onto caravans and sell them across the rest of the Near East. In ancient Canaan, frankincense was used by the Hebrews as an offering to their god, Yahweh, while the ancient Egyptians used frankincense during funerary and burial practices. 
In India, myrrh was said to lengthen your lifespan and was used in various medical practices. While the ancient Chinese physicians believed frankincense could be used to increase or decrease blood flow. In short, these incenses were always in high demand, and this demand led to high value. This value was further inflated by the limited supply of the resins used to make these incenses, as the trees that produce them grow only in two regions, Yemen and East Africa. And, while the incense trade was already lucrative, Saba could make it even more lucrative if they could just further monopolize its production. By 1000 BC, East Africa was largely the same as it had always been, populated by scattered agrarian towns and city-states of Cushitic-speaking peoples. The one exception to this was in the region of modern Eritrea and northern Ethiopia, an indigenous Semitic-speaking culture that practiced a highly sophisticated urban lifestyle. Ona city-states, like Koheto, Sumbel, and Onaguda, among others, were scattered across this section of the northern highlands. Unfortunately, the sites of these cities remained relatively unexcavated due to the politically unstable state of the region in recent decades. However, the pottery from the region shows that the Ona had access to ceramic techniques that were pretty advanced for the time, and that they generally led a lifestyle defined by high degrees of career specialization. The Ona cities, just like Saba, had also benefited from the export of incense, as well as other valuable materials like ivory, rhinoceros horns, and ebony wood. Their exporting of incenses, though, presented a problem to the Sabaeans, as this threatened their international monopoly on the good. In order to maintain its wealthy trade empire unchallenged, Saba had to increase its influence in the land of the Ona. Starting in this era, there is a marked increase in the influence of Sabaean culture in the Ona city-states. Their pottery from the time begins to exhibit more characteristics of Southern Arabian pottery, where they once matched more with those of their Cushitic neighbors. The architecture of Ona temples begins to resemble the architecture of temples in Marib, and, in the clearest example of increased cultural influence, the Southern Arabian writing script begins to appear all over the region around this time. So, obviously something's going on to increase the influence of Saba in East Africa. But what exactly? For a long time, Western scholars on the matter assumed the most straightforward cause, that this influence came about from Sabaean colonization. In this hypothesis, the Sabaeans led a military invasion of the Ona culture, colonized the region with southern Arabian settlers, and then forced their culture on the local inhabitants. This hypothesis would explain the rapid cultural shift that took place, but there are some serious problems with it. For starters, this theory emerged in the early 20th century, a time when Europeans were infamously doing this practice of colonization throughout many parts of the world. In Eritrea, for example, the Italian Empire had led a military invasion, colonized the land with Italian settlers, and tried to force their culture, namely the Roman Catholic form of Christianity, on the local inhabitants. Now, on its own, this doesn't necessarily mean the hypothesis is wrong, but it is awfully convenient that European scholars from the time promoted a view of the past that lined up with European policy goals from the period. If you're trying to promote the view, for example, that Africans are just naturally meant to be colonized, finding examples of this colonization in the past would strongly support this viewpoint. Beyond the conspicuous circumstances of its origin, the colonization hypothesis deserves some more skepticism based on the lack of evidence surrounding it. Ona cities from this time don't show any signs of any sort of mass destruction and later rebuilding. Sabaean records don't record any sort of major military incursion. And, most crucially, 
There is no evidence that Saba during this era had any sort of significant military capability necessary to mount such a large invasion. Yes, Saba would eventually consolidate into a more martial state and wield true armies hundreds of years from now, but at this moment their military composed little more than local militias. Therefore, a military invasion across the Red Sea seems unlikely at best. So, if it wasn't colonization, what else can explain this rising influence? One alternative is that, rather than through conquest, this was a more economically driven influence. What if Saba's increasing influence in East Africa came from trade? This idea also seems compelling at first. After all, despite never having a colonial empire on the scale of Europeans, the United States recently has been successful at spreading its culture globally through economic means. People around the world wear blue jeans and listen to American pop music. Almost every country in the world has at least one KFC or a McDonald's somewhere, and cities throughout the world are littered with buildings designed in the American architectural style. Is it possible that Saba had a similar influence on the Ona? Well, it seems to make sense, but there is one glaring issue I have with the economic hypothesis, which lies in the genetic makeup of the peoples of Southern Arabia and East Africa today. You see, many people in the modern states of Eritrea and Ethiopia exhibit genetic traits that appear to show some level of Southern Arabian ancestry. The same is true in Southern Arabia, where there is a pronounced genetic footprint of African ancestry in many Yemeni people to this day. So, this indicates that there is at least some level of intermarriage going on between Southern Arabians and East Africans, which the genetic evidence indicates happened through the time around 1000 to 700 BC. Additionally, the frequency of this genetic crossover indicates that intermarriage between East Africans and Southern Arabians was not just something that happened on occasion, but was an incredibly common occurrence. In my view, this contradicts the economic hypothesis, as it shows that there was some kind of major migration occurring between East Africa and Arabia during this period, but in a more two-directional form. And this brings me to the hypothesis that I personally believe is correct, the Federation Hypothesis. This view argues that the Ona states were integrated directly into the Sabaean state, but not as colonial subjects, and instead as members of a federation. Remember that Saba during this era was not so much a kingdom as it was a theocratic confederation of autonomous city-states. I believe that, seeking mutual benefit, the Mukarib of Saba was able to negotiate the various Ona states to join the Saba confederation. To me, this can explain all the problems that existed in the previous hypotheses. For one, the genetic crossover makes sense here, as the Ona were incorporated into the Sabaean state, and thus travel between themselves and the territories of southern Arabia were common. It also explains the lack of evidence for any type of military invasion, and explains the speed at which southern Arabian culture was spread throughout the Ona region. So, based on this, let's assume that the confederation with Saba is how the states of East Africa fell under Sabaean influence. By choosing to confederate with Saba, these city-states reap numerous benefits. For one, by joining the Confederacy, these states were now part of Saba's monopoly on frankincense and myrrh, and could thus partake in the benefits that this monopoly brought. These states also already spoke a Semitic language, and thus might have had an easier time negotiating and creating and maintaining alliances with the Semitic-speaking Sabaeans than with their Cushitic-speaking neighbors. Whatever the reason, this confederation of the Sabaeans and Ona proved fruitful for both sides. Both Saba and the Ona region experienced massive construction booms during this period, indicating that there was a period of economic success at the time. Culturally, the Ona absorbed a lot of influence from their Sabaean allies. One of the most important is the Southern Arabian way of writing. 
The script of Southern Arabia became used for daily record-keeping throughout the Ona cities. This script was not an alphabet, but was instead what is known as an abjad, a form of writing that only indicates consonants. Vowel sounds, instead, are implied, and not written directly, which can make the transliteration of this ancient language difficult for historians. But, even so, the introduction of writing to East Africa was immensely helpful for future historians, as they don't need to rely as much on oral traditions, and can instead use more reliable written records. These vowel sounds would eventually be added in the future, though, and eventually the Southern Arabian writing system will evolve into Gaez, the main script used in Ethiopia and Eritrea today. Importantly for a state as theocratic as Saba was the Ona's acceptance of the Southern Arabian faith. The Mukaribs claimed direct descent from the moon god Al-Makah himself. So an essential component of their alliance with the Ona relied on shared belief in the divine origin of the Mukaribs. Most of the oldest buildings with Southern Arabian influence to be built in East Africa are temples to Al-Makah, indicating that this conversion was most likely an essential condition of joining the Sabaean Confederation. Southern Arabian paganism would remain the dominant religion in the region for more than a millennium, with worship of Al-Makah being a mainstay of early Ethiopian civilization. However, by the end of the 10th century BC, cracks were beginning to form in this Ethiopio-Sabaean alliance. Wealth and influence was growing increasingly consolidated in a few larger cities at the expense of the small villages and towns of the region. As urbanization spread across the region, certain powerful cities in East Africa commanded enough power and influence that rivaled that of Marib. But the confederation was still mutually beneficial, so there was no point in challenging it. One city, however, quickly began to rise to prominence and disrupted the status quo of the region in the process. This city, once a small town on the outskirts of the Ona region, was Yeha, and it would quickly become the center of a very important transformation that would shape the future of Ethiopian civilization. Join us next week as we chronicle the fall of the Sabaean Confederacy, and finally witness the beginning of the true rise of Ethiopian civilization in the form of the country's first fully independent regional power, the Kingdom of Damat. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.